So you know what's funny is that I never knew that Michelle Pfeiffer was a person because I just didn't, I wasn't thinking about it. But I know Mackay Pfeiffer. Yes, from like 8 Mile. And, and ER. And so whenever I saw Michelle Pfeiffer, I was like, wait, is that who Eminem is talking about in that song? And then I would think, <laughs> wait, but I saw a name that's similar to that, and it's for not a white lady. <laughs> And so I went back and looked at it while we were doing this, and it's Mackay Pfeiffer is the is the so, guy from ER. So you've you've uh, you've never seen like uh, what was the movie with Gangsters Paradise with Dangerous Minds or whatever? You never saw that. No, I'm not. You never saw Batman Returns. Nope. Wow. Okay. I mean, yes, that was she was kind of the late late '80s, early '90s were her. Or her heyday. But that's what but, I just realized right now, today, while we were recording. <laughs> that it's Michelle Pfeiffer and Mackay Pfeiffer. And they're different people, obviously. They are. Last time I checked. We Can Do This All Day, episode 23, Ant-Man and the Wasp Review. Are you ready, partner? Rock and roll, buckaroo. Hi, this is Mark. And we can do this all day. A podcast where we review all the movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We'll go through each film in the MCU chronologically and discuss our overall impressions. Things we liked, things we didn't like, and everything in between. We hope you'll tune in and stay with us till the end of the line. It's another Friday night here in the nation's capital. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us. My name is Mark Villa. I'm joined, as always... By my co-host, Emily Griswold. Hey, Emily. Hello. I apologize in advance if I sound kind of weird tonight. I have been doing a lot of talking in the last 36 hours. Didn't plan it that way, but that's just kind of how it happened. So I tried to talk as little as possible as I could today because I knew we were recording. Who knows? Maybe I'll send, Maybe I sound better this way. I don't know. Like, a, like an old-time radio host? Like how a, old? Like a smooth jazz... Late night radio host. And now for some Kenny G. Yeah, yeah. Right here on WMTV. Yes, I missed my I missed my calling, I'm sure. Emily and I, uh, we had some interesting news to report. It, it's as long and all the time that we've known each other, we did not see, we have never gone to a Marvel movie in the theater together until just a week ago. Isn't that a thing? At first I thought you were wrong, but that was Star Wars that we saw. That was Star Wars that we saw. That's correct. Couldn't tell you which one. It was that horrible Rise of Skywalker. I remember I had a piece cold. of garbage. You had a cold, yes. I remember I had a cold because afterwards I had like dosed myself up on Dayquil and afterwards it was like wearing off and everyone wanted to stand in the lobby and talk and I had to sit down on the ground. This was de- this was December of 2019, so it was pre-COVID, so I guarantee she had a COVID. cold. It could have been COVID, we don't know. Who oh, no, that's a good point. It could <laughs> At have that been. Point. None of the rest of us got sick, but uh but yeah, so yeah, Emily and I saw Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness last Saturday afternoon. I had a really good time. I think you did too. Yeah, I liked it. Well, you know, obviously we'll we'll have a, a more in-depth review at some point in the future on that film. I really enjoyed it. I had, a, I had, I really had a good time. I thought it was a fun film. Uh, I, I think I like the first film better still, but I found this was a, I thought this was a worthy, uh, 
it, it did what it needed to do and it needed to do a lot. Um, and I thought it did fair. I thought it did very well on most counts. I'm pretty ambivalent about it. I've been getting like dissertations from some of our friends about it and I just don't care enough. I've never cared about Dr. Strange enough, I think is the problem. I've had a lot of people, a lot of people have talked to me. Well, no, not a lot of people talk about, I've listened to a lot of podcasts and stuff in the comic book world. And so there are a lot of divergent opinions, but you know, it's nice to hear those. But what matters to me is that I had a good time. And so that's that. But we're not here to talk about that right now. We are, well, we are here to talk about Ant-Man and the Wasp. But before we do Ant-Man and the Wasp, we do have a little bit of MCU news. <laughs> that kind of ties into what we're talking about tonight. The Marvels and Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania are apparently swapping release dates next year. The Marvels was, Marvels was originally slated to be released on February 17th, 2023, and Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, July 28th, 2023. Those dates have now been switched. So Quantumania will be dropping in February of next year, and the Marvels will fly into theaters next July. Although we have really no idea why exactly that happened, though I think I'm pretty sure that Ant-Man was a little further along in production. So that may have had something to do with it. They'll have that film ready quicker. But enough of that. Did you have anything else to add? No. Did you re have you read anything in your... Your little social media, internets, interwebs, universe. No, I'm just thinking about Moon Knight still. Yes, as of as of this recording, Moon Knight finished up last week, and uh, wow, what a doozy! We'll get to talk about that at some point. I hope. I hope so too. You did. You did get my uh, message the other day about the uh, the Moon Knight rumor. Did I did. Not? Yeah, that would I would lose my mind. No. Yeah, I I can't. Okay, so for those of you who haven't heard, there's a rumor. This is this is completely unsubstantiated. There's a rumor going around that Moon Knight will appear at some point in the future in Captain America 4. And, of course, I posited to Emily, you know, can you imagine Oscar Isaac and Sebastian Stan being in the same film? I, I've, I've, when we come around, assuming this podcast survives that long, and of course, you know, hopefully it will we get around to reviewing that film and that actually ends up happening. I'm just going to have to spend, I'm going to have to cut out like a 15 minute block of that review and just turn off my mic and let you just pontificate on both of your boys sharing the big screen. At no, the same it'll time. just be 15 minutes of me being thirsty and talking about the plot. Because that's why you watch these movies, right? Yeah. The plot. For the plot, of course. Stay tuned, folks. We'll see what happens. In the interim, we are here to talk about Ant-Man and the Wasp, which opened up in the U.S. on July 6, 2018, about two months after the epic cliffhanger of Avengers Infinity War. It stars Paul Rudd, Evangeline Lilly, Michael Douglas, Walton Goggins, Hannah John Kamen, Randall Park, Lawrence Fishburne, Michael Pena, Tip T.I. Harris, David Desmalchian, Bobby Cannavale, Judy Greer, Abby Ryder Fortson, and last but certainly not least, Michelle Pfeiffer. Peyton Reed returns to the director's chair for this one after having come in at the last minute to direct the first film. The script was written by Chris McKenna, Eric Summers, and Paul Rudd. 
along with Andrew Barr and Gabrielle Ferrari. At the box office, the the film had a budget of somewhere between 130 and 195 million dollars. It made 622.7 million, a very respectable hit by most box office standards. It ranks number 20 of the 20 selvent of well, at the at the time 20 or as of before before uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, ranked number 20 of the 27 films. Just a bit behind, excuse me, just a bit ahead of Thor The Dark World and just a bit behind Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Um, we're not counting Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, which, as of this recording, had only been in theaters for about a week. I really like the first Ant-Man film, <laughs> because we, as we discussed in our review. It's in my top ten MCU films at number eight. I was very much looking forward to the sequel, back in 2018, and for the most part, I was kind of disappointed. Uh, I still love the characters, and I love Paul Rudd, and I generally like the story that they were trying to tell, but I just thought it got so messy, especially in that last 45 minutes where you've got everybody chasing everybody, and it's hard to tell what's going on, and who's doing what, and why. I mean, I, I think it's not quite as bad as, like, the last hour of Thor The Dark World, but I still think this film under-delivers. I think it contrasts considerably with the kind of laser focus we had on the heist in the first film. In trying to do so many things, I don't think this film does any of them particularly well. There's also just something about the tone of the film, you know, between the humorous sight gags and Scott and the ex-con guys and Agent Wu and, you know, to a degree, Sonny Birch. I think the film banks too hard on goofy humor goofy humor. I think I miss Edgar Wright's influence on the first film. I don't normally like quirky, but in that first film's case, I think it worked out pretty well. And I think it was, that was kind of lacking in this one. I think my problem with these movies, like the Ant-Man movies, is the same problem I have with the Guardians movies, is that they're trying too hard to be funny. I think the the humor in other movies that are maybe a little bit darker, you know, like some of the humor that's in Winter Soldier, some of the humor that's in Black Panther is better. I think it's just written better. It's woven into the script better. And in these movies, there are serious things going on. Like there are serious topics at hand, but they're just like, but look at this joke. And you're like, okay, gr what? Great. But <laughs> we're trying to like, go through something serious here and you like yeah humor's a good defense mechanism but it's just isn't done well I don't think and I think my other issue with movies like this and movies like Guardians so like those two in particular is like you know this about me I'm not really much of like a high fantasy person like I don't do talking animals mm -hmm. I don't do right like witches and wizards kind of stuff. Like, I prefer fantasy that is down-to-earth, like, real-world kind of fantasy. Mm -hmm. You know, like, we're still taking the subway to get to where we need to go kind of situations instead of, we're flying on the back of a dragon. And that's kind of how <laughs> these movies feel, that it's almost too high fantasy for me. I haven't really, like, fleshed this idea out because I just thought about it. But I think that might be my problem with these movies is that it's the fantastical elements are too much and the humor is too much. 
and not in a good way. I definitely agree with you on the humor, especially in Ant-Man and the Wasp. I think they really, I think a lot of the humor is very forced in this one. Um, I, 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 thought, I just thought the, the first film did a much better job of being funny without, you know, having to kind of feel like they were pressing your, pressing the funny button all the time. Um, I th- and something else that occurred to me and that I don't have in the, that I don't have in our script, I, it, it, a lot of this, since this is the second Ant-Man film, it kind of has a lot of the hallmarks of some of those phase two movies, you know, like Thor, the dark world and Iron Man two. It's at, at, you know, Avengers age of Ultron. It's a movie that has to happen in order to introduce, they're trying to introduce certain elements to get us to the next point. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, the quantum realm, there's, without this film, you know, Endgame, without this film, they don't defeat Thanos in Endgame. Spoiler alert. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, they needed to make this film to get us the quantum realm and to give us the out that they need to 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 defeat Thanos in Endgame. Um, so it's like they built this whole movie, they built a whole movie around getting us to that point to some extent. But they also wanted to get, you know, we wanted to get Janet Van Dyne, and I, yeah, that makes sense. So, but it's still, yeah, it's not, it's just not one of my favorites. You know, we we're talking about rankings. For the longest time, this was dead last on my list. Um, I updated it recently, though, because I, I watched it. I still, I, it's, the film's got problems, but there's still, there's still some entertainment. There's still some, you know, uh, uh I got some entertainment value out of it more than I had gotten out of it the first several times that I watched it. So I bumped it up a little bit. Um, I, um, I've ranked it at, um, so it was, you know, out of 27, it was number 27. I've moved it up to number 25 out of 28. Uh, cause I did add, I did add Dr. Strange in the multiverse of madness to my list for the time being, it's at number 16, but uh, this one, Ant-Man and the Wasp, is that uh, I put a twenty-five right between between the two Iron Man sequels, so it's between it's like a little above Iron Man three and a little below Iron Man two. So Incredible Hulk is now uh, the sole owner of the seller <laughs> on my list. I just realized while I was watching the movie for this episode that I never wrote down my rankings for the first time Ant Man movie. There were two movies. I can't remember what the first one is, but there were two movies that I didn't write down for some reason. Um, so I went back and I listened to our episode that we did with Cherokee and found out that I ranked it 15th. So that's just between Spider-Man Homecoming at 14th and Iron Man 3 at 16th. And as far as this movie, the one we're actually talking about, I ranked it 19. And so it's between Age of Ultron in front and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 right behind it. And then Incredible Hulk is still at the bottom. But I also haven't ranked any of the movies that we haven't seen for the show yet. And I don't quite want to put Incredible Hulk at the very end. Because I feel like there probably are some movies. I'm not going to give anything away, but there are a couple movies that I would put at the very end. So. I think I know which one you're talking about. There are movies that I dislike more than Incredible Hulk. Which says a lot about those movies, I think. The film opens up with a flashback to the mid-1980s. As conveyed by Hank Pym to Hope Van Dyne. It is the night that Hank and Janet Van Dyne said goodbye to Hope and left home to stop the nuclear missile headed towards the U.S., as referenced in Ant-Man. The spaces between the plating on the missile are too tight, so, with the regulator on Hank's Ant-Man suit malfunctioning, Janet, in her wasp suit, shrinks down to a subatomic level, 
squeezes into the missile and disarms it, but is now lost alone in the quantum realm, gone forever. Hank then tells Hope that Scott Lang's arrival, his venturing into the quantum realm, and his subsequent return changed the game. He produces a set of old plans for something called a quantum tunnel, and says he thinks he can use it to bring back Janet Van Dyne from the quantum realm. Fast forward to two years after the events of Captain America Civil War. Scott Lang is three days away from the end of his house arrest in San Francisco. While playing with his daughter, Cassie, his ankle monitor accidentally breaks the perimeter and triggers a full search of the house by FBI Special Agent Jimmy Woo. Wait, so Clem was on house arrest too. I assume so, given that he wasn't involved in Infinity War. Also, hey Jimmy. Yeah, Clint was uh, under house arrest on the farm. Uh, you might remember the the shot of the ankle monitor at the very beginning of Endgame when he's doing the archery thing with his daughter. So they cut, then the... they cut they cut to the to show you that he's got an ankle monitor on. So then the question is, did Clint graduate from house arrest or just peace out? Well, there's a lot. There's there's still a lot about there's still a lot about what happened during the blip that we haven't been told. It just kind of. Well, we don't know about Clint since he went all Ronin on everybody. We don't know, we don't know the details of you know was he just outright pardoned after the snap or what? We just don't know. Wu explains that his involvement with Steve Rogers violated the Sokovia Accords. As a part of a plea deal with Homeland Security and the German government, Scott was allowed to return to the U.S. provided he served two years of house arrest, followed by three years probation and did not have any contact with any Accord-prohibited technology or with any past associates who were also in violation of the Accords. We also discover that because their tech, which Scott used in Germany, is in violation of the Accords, Hank Pym and Hope Van Dyne are wanted fugitives now. But Scott has not had any contact with them in a very long time, and associating with them violates his agreement, which means 20 years in prison. Besides, according to Cassie, they, quote, hate his guts. Scott attempts to pass the final days of his arrest as innocuously as possible, goofing off, attending online magic school, and running his own security systems and consulting company, XCon, from the house, along with his three buddies. One day, he dreams of his time in the quantum realm and believes he has a vision of Janet Van Dyne. Using a burner phone concealed within the walls of the house, Scott calls Hank and leaves a voicemail message telling him about the dream and apologizing once again for everything that has happened. All right, so at this point, I'm still on board. <laughs> I like the flashback with Hank and Janet. Uh, I like the Agent Wu recap of Scott's situation. I like the bit with Scott crying while reading The Fault in Our Stars by John Green. So I'm still on board, you know, 15 minutes in. I really liked the dream. I'm interested so far. While eating breakfast, Scott is seemingly bitten by a small insect and passes out. He wakes up in a miniaturized Hyundai SUV being driven by Hope Van Dyne. His ankle monitor having been put on a giant ant who is now replacing Scott in his home. This feels like how it does when you get electrocuted and turn tiny while playing Mario Kart. <laughs> it was that was a that's a very uh, it's a very prescient prescient comment i had to think i had to i haven't played mario kart in a while so i had to sit back and remember oh that's right yes well yeah you know you get really really tiny and all the music turns the music turns really tinny and weird we'll see if i get called let's see we'll see if we get a cease and desist letter because i just hummed like a few bars of the ant-man theme 
little mini tri-tam thing. But yes, that's exactly it. Because they do that in the movie. They start playing that kind of thing when they're they're shrunk down. Playing a lot of Mario Kart in the writer's room, it would seem. It would appear so. She drives them to an abandoned office building, re-enlarges the car, and takes Scott into the building. It contains a lab where she and Hank, with the help of some enlarged ants, have been building a device, the Quantum Tunnel, to take them to the Quantum Realm to rescue Janet Van Dyne by way of a small pod. The night before, Hank and Hope powered up the device for the first time. It overloaded, but for a split second, the door to the Quantum Realm was open. Five minutes later, Scott called about his vision of Janet. Hank and Hope believe that when Scott was in the Quantum Realm, he may have become entangled with Janet and that she planted some sort of message in him, perhaps with information on her exact location, and that opening the tunnel somehow triggered it. When Scott gives them the details about the dream, about Janet playing hide-and-seek with a little girl hiding in a red wardrobe, it confirms that Janet was trying to communicate through Scott. The little girl was Hope, and she always used to hide there. The three of them leave the lab before Hank shrinks down the entire building and rolls it away with them. They have arranged to buy a part to keep the quantum tunnel from shutting down from a black market tech dealer named Sonny Birch, from whom they also purchase much of the tech to build the tunnel anonymously. As they depart, a faded hooded figure seems to appear out of nowhere. For the record, I used to have that tire-shaped Hot Wheels case that (laughs) they carry around all their mini-tries cars in. I understand why Hank and Hope are so gung-ho about this. And I guess you could say that Scott owes them this for losing the suit and basically becoming an international criminal while using their tech. But do we even know why Scott is the only one to have come back from the quantum realm within a reasonable period of time? They also mentioned something about how the entanglement won't last, but it's apparently strong enough that Janet still has a link to Scott after three to four years. Maybe I'm misunderstanding the whole thing because like, when we start talking about quantum physics, I sort of glaze over sometimes. <coughs> But it seems like they could probably wait a few days for him to get off house arrest, at least. I thought you, uh, I thought you were like our resident quantum physics expert. No, resident interested in quantum physics, unless it gets weird like this. Oh, okay. So there's conditions on, there's conditions on your, on your I have knowledge. Conditions on everything, of course. Of course you do. I have no idea. I mean, I, I, I say because Marvel. That's my answer. <laughs> But what's so? Sp- I just want to know what's so special about Scott that he could go and come back and doesn't need all this extra help. Because Janet sure seems to need a lot of help to get out of the quantum realm, and Scott was just like, "Here I am." I'm thinking he he thought about his do- he thought about his daughter. Oh, so Janet didn't think about, about uh, Hope and Hank enough. I guess she didn't. Ooh, burn! <laughs> <laughs> she didn't love them enough. Whoops. Well, it's. It's it's funny it's funny you say that because you know Michelle Pfeiffer did have a did used to have sort of a, a reputation for signing on to projects and then just bailing out at the last minute because she was Michelle Pfeiffer. So perhaps that was perhaps there was some subtext in there that we were just sort of not consciously aware of. Hope meets with Sonny, who has the part they need. Unfortunately, he's figured out who Hope and Hank really are and what they intend to do with the parts they've been buying from him. And as a result, he's already sought out buyers for their lab. And one of them is offering a billion dollars to buy it. Hope refuses and is prepared to walk away. Sonny lets her go, but keeps her money. 
She returns moments later in the wasp suit given to her by her father in the end of the previous movie, armed with wings and blasters, and begins to systematically take apart Sonny's men. She's about to leave with the part when the shadowy figure suddenly appears. The two of them fight, but the ghost figure has the ability to phase in and out of reality, making it difficult for Hope to fight it. Monitoring the situation from a van, Hank gives Scott a backup Ant-Man suit he has stowed away. He uses it to assist Hope, but the ghost escapes and takes the miniaturized lab from Hank. Scott, Hank, and Hope hide out in the XCON office with Louise, Dave, and Kurt while they plan their next move. Meanwhile, the ghost arrives at an old house in the woods with Hank's lab. As she enters the house, she removes her helmet and makes her way towards some sort of rejuvenation chamber. She appears very weak and in pain, and she continues to phase in and out of this reality. So we're a little more than a quarter of the way through the movie, and I'm still on board. The fight between Hope and Sonny's men is very well choreographed, and exactly what I'd expect of our first taste of the Wasp. And Ghost certainly presents an intriguing nemesis. But this is also where one of the film's biggest flaws starts to present itself. Too many antagonists. It's not a problem yet, but we meet what are clearly two separate villains in this film in just a matter of minutes. I'm super into Ghost, and I have a few theories, but I'm going to keep them to myself because I'm probably wrong, and I don't want to be embarrassed later. Hank and Hope deduce that the ghost is probably quantum phasing in and out of different states of matter. The lab emits radiation so they can construct a device to track it, but the equipment that they need to do so is in the lab. We can't skip over Scott's buddies. I forgot all about those guys. What do we want to, what do we want to say what do we want to say about Scott's buddies? No, I just love we them. haven't we haven't we haven't seen much of them. They're not in this movie a whole lot and we haven't seen them much at this point other than uh, I do like uh, I really do like <laughs> when they when everyone first arrives at the XCON, the offices and Luis is like, you know, Dr. Pym, once again, you know, we're honored that you've come to us in your time of need. <laughs> and then they, and then Dave and Dave and Kurt start complaining about the oatmeal packets. That part was <laughs> really funny. Yeah. The Ent- the Entomans. Yeah, I guess if you're starting a if you're starting a business and you don't have any clients, you, you I guess that probably is a big deal, the snacks that you provide. I like Every little penny. Later, the part when they're talking about the undercarriage, <laughs> like getting the undercarriage wash. I thought that part was kind of funny, and I do like the Baba Yaga joke because I. Do you like the? I don't like the Baba Yaga joke. That just felt. It was. It was like funny when he it was sort of vaguely funny when he first mentions it, but then at the very you know later on we start like you know singing the little Baba Yaga lullaby. I'm like, oh okay, <laughs> do we have to go back to that? Yes, we do because it's funny. We talk about forced humor, and yet you thought the Baba Yaga joke was funny. Okay. Well, I All think right. it fits, because like every culture has like a weird, like creepy, haunting lady. Every culture has one. I just, it, it felt like they went back one too many times on that one. But They only went back like twice. Yeah, like they I did, said, they one did too it the many. one time, and then they had it again. They brought it up again, because then he actually saw her. <laughs> I think that's I think that's fine. All right. So Emily likes the Baba Yaga gag. Hank reluctantly agrees to visit Bill Foster, an old colleague from his shield days with whom he had a falling out several years ago, who might be able to assist them in constructing a device to locate the lab. It is a tense meeting 
with Foster recalling how egotistical and arrogant Hank was. Scott, Hope, and Hank have to leave quickly when they spot Wu and a cadre of FBI agents swarming the university campus where Foster teaches. Before they leave, Foster tells them that they may be able to track the lab by modifying the diffractor in the regulator in one of their suits. Once they leave, Hank says that none of the new suits he's constructed recently have diffractors in them. Despite the fact that he told them that he destroyed his original Ant-Man suit before he was arrested, Scott reveals that he shrank it down and mailed it to Luis, who hid it inside a trophy in Scott's house. Unfortunately, after Luis scours the house for it, it becomes apparent that Cassie has taken the trophy to school with her. For those of you who don't follow Marvel Comics, Bill Foster's Goliath is a superhero who is basically just like Giant Man. He grows really big. Um, so he's a, he's a so he's a sort of a somewhat of a legacy Marvel hero. So it was kind of cool to have him brought into the MCU, even just in in term you know by way of a mention. I also wanted to point out that Luis's comment about how Hank seems to have falling outs with lots of people. You know, looking back now, Bill Foster, Howard Stark, Darren Cross, his daughter, and now Scott to an extent. You know, I don't know. At first, it was it was kind of it felt kind of easy to accept some of those falling outs because you know Stark was a jerk and wanted to use the pin particles for who knows what. You know, Cross turned into a supervillain, and Hope was grieving the loss of her mom. But after hearing what Foster says in this film, and hearing Hank's reaction to him more than anything else, yeah, I can I can kind of see Hank being a pompous ass. I could have accepted that in the first movie. <laughs> He's never been particularly enjoyable to be around in the two movies that we've seen him in so far. You know, he's just one of those distrustful, self-absorbed, egotistical kind of dudes. Welcome to science, I guess. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of scientists watching these movies probably have something to say about that, but... Scott and Hope sneak into the school to try and find the trophy, but the regulator on Scott's new suit malfunctions, and he finds himself stuck at half his normal size. He dons a sweatshirt Hope finds in a lost and found bin, and impersonates a kid in order to sneak into Cassie's classroom, which is conveniently empty, of course, and get the suit from inside the trophy in her cubby. So I kind of referenced this earlier. I think one of the problems I have with this movie is that there are way too many cheap sight gags involving ridiculous size differentials. The first film was really economical and efficient and clever in how they played those moments for laughs. There are a lot more of them in this film, and they're they're not always subtle about it. Like, I mean, I'm sure kids love this movie. Uh, I, I, I keep thinking about my, my 12-year-old nephew who really likes this movie a lot. I guess I just like I just I, I guess I just like the humor to be a little bit more subtle and less on the nose. I think this particular side gag is not that great. Like I thought it was funny at first, like the first very few seconds that it was existing, and then when he ran down the hallway, I was like, "No, this is dumb." Yeah, the running down the hallway just looked really ridiculous. He looked like a like a Jawa in Star Wars. <laughs> He kind of did. I don't remember what a Jawa is, but I think I remember what they are. The dudes on Tatooine and little brown robes. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Teeny. I didn't know that's what they were called, but yes, yeah. They're called Jawas. Those guys. Yeah, he looked like a yeah. He looked like a freaking Jawa. Hank is able to use the regulator in the old suit to pinpoint the lab's location, Ghost's base of operations, just like Foster said. Scott and Hope enter the house and locate the lab, 
They are about to retrieve it when they are ambushed by the ghost and knocked unconscious. Scott wakes up to find himself tied up along with Hope and Hank. The ghost, whose name we find out to be Ava Starr, reveals that she doesn't need the suit to phase. It simply helps her control the ability and, supposedly, helps control the pain she constantly experiences. The trio are then shocked when Bill Foster enters the room. Many years earlier, Ava's father, Elias Starr, worked with Hank at S.H.I.E.L.D. until Hank fired and discredited him. Elias attempted to carry on his work alone and with fewer resources at his disposal. During one such experiment, he and his wife were killed in an accident, and Ava's unstable state, molecular disequilibrium, was what it's called, began. With every molecule in her body always being torn apart and put back together, she is in near-constant pain. Foster, still with S.H.I.E.L.D. at that time, worked with Ava to try to help her deal with her condition. But the higher-ups at S.H.I.E.L.D. decided to weaponize her, providing her with the containment suit and training her to be a stealth operative. In exchange, they promised to help cure Ava, but it was never to be. After S.H.I.E.L.D. collapsed, Foster took Ava in and built her the chamber in an attempt to slow down the decay of her molecules. Their intention is to use Scott to find Janet, bring her back, and then extract her quantum energy to save Ava. Believing this will kill Janet, Hank, Hope, and Scott trick Foster into unleashing giant ants into the room. The ants free Hank, Hope, and Scott, and they escape with the lab. I've got a lot to say about this scene. First, I'm noticing as I'm typing all of this that for such a short movie, there's a lot of exposition in this one. A lot of talking and explaining of stuff, which, you know, violates my show-don't-tell rule quite a bit. Second, I'm just not digging Hannah John Kamen's performance as Ava. You know, I get that she's mad. You know, in fact, I sympathize with her. Hank treated her and her family quite badly. Very That's very obvious. No doubt about that. But to me, she just kind of comes off as being just pretty over-the-top pissed off. You know, not a whole lot of nuance there. Third, the gag with Scott's phone going off while Foster's talking, that was a bit much. And, you know, it's not like the phone call actually ended up being important for anything. I guess the phone call kind of did end up being important because they ended up at his house at just the right time. But I agree with you. The phone gag is bad. <laughs> it was help. It was helpful in the sense that we needed to get Cassie to the house later in a couple more, however many more scenes, whenever it happens. That's but true. Not, I'd forgotten about that. Not that good. I didn't think it was good. I think they held on to it for too long is the problem. Like, it would have been funny with, like, the first ring and then maybe the second ring and then they picked it up, but it rang, like, a gajillion times. Mm-hmm. And they held on to it. But I do think I'm on board with Ava's reason for being mad at Hank and, by extension, Hope and Scott. You know, she's over the top, yeah, but when your whole life is dedicated to righting a wrong that you experienced when you were super young and was super traumatic, over the top kind of seems just right. I do think she's being taken advantage of. You know, Foster knows she's mad and knows that she spent most of her life as a weapon because of what her dad did. Pretty much only because Hank Pym fired and discredited him. And he's using that to... Bill Foster's using that to his advantage. Sure, he might want to cure Ava of her phasing or disequilibrium, whatever. But he also (laughs) probably would like to access the quantum realm for himself and gather whatever power comes with it. And I think she's so blinded by her rage that she doesn't realize that she's being used again. 
or maybe she does and she just doesn't care. Well, I don't get the feeling. I mean, you, you're, you know, you're entitled. You're entitled to your opinion of whether or not you think Ava's reaction kind of makes sense on screen. As for Foster, I, I don't know. I don't think he. I don't sense he's trying to use her. Well, if he's using her, it's less that he wants something from her, and more that he just kind of wants to. It's kind of his way of getting back at Hank. Okay, okay, you screwed up this kid's entire life well i'm gonna you know i'm gonna help i'm gonna fix it because i'm you know i'm a nicer guy than you yeah Hank but Pym. didn't bill foster kind of screw up when he let shield use her as a weapon you could that's true you could make that argument he i suppose have said you could make, no i imagine it may not have helped but he could have you know on principle i suppose he could have said no even if it was overruled I mean, I think Bill Foster's actually a perfectly fine person. I'm just, like, imagining situations in which he is not entirely being altruistic. I get it. And I do hope he and I do hope, and I'll, I'll talk about this later, I hope I hope we do get to see more of Ava and Bill Foster later in the MCU, because that was kind of a, sort of an, a loose end left at the end of this film that hasn't been addressed yet. Sonny Birch and some of his goons show up at the XCON office in an attempt to extract the location of the lab from Luis, Dave, and Kurt with truth serum. It's not truth serum. <laughs> Just had to throw that in. After another epic story from Luis, he lets slip that Scott and the lab are in Weir Woods. Suddenly, Ava appears and stalks off after the lab. Sonny phones his contact with the FBI to tip them off in exchange for access to the lab. So now, Ava, Sonny, and the FBI are all after our heroes. That's a lot. Plus, Luis leaking that if the sale they've been preparing for doesn't go through, this contract they're looking for, XCON will go out of business. I thought that was kind of funny. That's sort of sort of bringing that up in the middle of this. Uh, <laughs> they're being interrogated and they, they they stop for a moment to address their address their business affairs and the state of the company. I thought that was funny. But as I mentioned earlier, I thought the Baba Yaga thing was not all that funny. Who even is this sunny guy? Like, we don't even really explain what he's doing here beyond the fact that he and Hope are doing business, like, shady backdoor business deals. He's not in any other movie. He's not really properly introduced to us. He's a baddie and he's with the FBI. The only thing we really know about him is that he enjoys reminding people that he's a baddie just in case you forgot. And to be honest, I think he's pretty easy to forget about. I do really enjoy the bit at the end of the, all of this when Ava appears in the room and everyone's like, ah, 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 ah. like even Sonny and his goons are terrified. I think that's pretty funny. Well, he, he has a contact with the FBI. He's not a member of the FBI. I mean, who knows? Well, Maybe he, yeah, he was like, at some point. He's an arms dealer. He's like a, he's like a weapons dealer. He's like a tech. He's like a, a he's like a, he's kind of like a, he's kind of like a, He's kind of like a, a stupid version of Ulysses Claw. I just feel like he wasn't established well enough. Yeah, he was just kind of dropped in there for... Well, and that's another problem I think I have with the movie. He was just kind of dropped in there because they needed... I don't know, because the two, two, two entities... They needed something. They needed a third entity to chase after them. It wasn't enough that the, that, you know, that the ghost and the FBI are after them. We needed to introduce some dude. <laughs> some sort of goofy dude with lots of you know, hired, hired guns, you know, semi-competent hired guns to, in the plot. I don't know. 
Maybe they just really like Walton Goggins and were like, man, I want really want. Maybe Peyton Reed was like, man, I really want Walton Goggins in this movie. Yeah, I was a big fan of The Shield. <laughs> we got to get Walton Goggins in this movie. It's like, you know what this movie needs? Walton Goggins. That's exactly what happened. I'll Who does bet this you. movie need? No, Walton you Goggins. Said, you said his name so many times that I wanted to. Oh, okay. Make it a gag. See, I, I missed the gag. Hank and Hope complete the quantum tunnel and turn it on. Rather than seeing images of Janet Van Dyne, however, Scott ends up serving as a conduit for Janet's voice, and she speaks through him and momentarily takes control of his body. She helps Hank and Hope make some adjustments to the quantum tunnel so that they are able to pinpoint her exact location. But as they make preparations to go retrieve her, Luis calls Scott and warns him that he was forced to spill their location and that the FBI is headed to his place. Paul Rudd is just so sincere, but he also has such a hilarious face that I almost can't take this Janet Conduit stuff seriously. That might have actually been my, that actually might have been the best thing that Paul Rudd did in this entire film. Uh, It feels too much like him. Like, it feels too much like Scott because we've seen him be kind and gentle with Cassie. And so it kind of just feels like he's talking to Cassie. And he's not actually being another character to me. But the face, I mean, the face, you don't see, you don't see Scott Lang making that very. It still felt like a kind of face. Well, it is. Well, we, we know, I mean, we know from Paul having, Rudd, obviously. it's Paul Rudd and we've seen enough Paul Rudd and enough other things that we know that's a very Paul Rudd face, but we don't usually get a Paul Rudd face in the MCU. And we got one this time. And I thought it was funny. I thought it was very, very funny. Uh, and he's like holding. He's holding, you know, he's holding Hank's hand. And then when Janet finally vacates his body, he's still holding, he's still holding Hank's hand. And Hank is kind of uh, not so happy about that once he realizes that Janet is no longer there. Despite Hank's and Hope's renewed ire at having disclosed their location to Luis, they lend Scott the new Ant-Man suit and he's able to get back to his house before Wu realizes he was gone. But Hank and Hope are not so lucky as Sonny's FBI contact apprehends them the instant they shrink the lab. Before they are let off, however, Ava arrives and takes the lab. Fortunately, Scott is able to break Hank and Hope out fairly quickly, and the ants help them locate the lab. Unfortunately, they know Ava and Foster are inside attempting to get Janet. Equally unfortunate, Sonny's goons observed their escape and have tailed them. So at this point, it was, it was, only, it was only at that point on like my fifth time watching this movie that I was finally able to keep track of what was going on in this particular scene and who was chasing who for what reasons that's about to change but at least at this point at least this one particular this one particular sequence I finally figured out what was going on and I was very proud of myself that little talk between Cassie and Scott was so sweet you know I know we've said this before but I think Marvel really hits it out of the park with their kid actors and even though she knows she can't directly help him, she does her best, like calling the audible and saying that Scott was sick to save his butt. I also love those inside jokes, like the world's greatest grandma trophy. I think that's one, like really funny. First of all, did you just use a football metaphor? I spent eight years watching high school football every Friday night from August to November. I know things. Because you've already told me you don't know anything about football. Even I mean, despite I know the fact that- like lots of people use that phrase, though. And also, right. like, I know the bare basics. I just, okay, it's not that I don't know anything. It's that I hate everything that I do know because I hate football. 
Is that right. is that more That more makes more sense. <laughs> that makes more sense. All right. Thank you. Second of all, it's funny that you mentioned that scene because I think the very first trailer for Ant-Man and the Wasp, the very first thing we see in the trailer is a piece of that conversation. So I guess it's... Uh, see, Mar- yeah, you're absolutely right. Marvel knows what it's doing, and they knows they know which buttons to press and how to press them, and they know that that... Uh, they knew that that, uh, you know, Cassie and Scott and Cassie interactions elicit certain responses that we that are positive from the audience. So all those kids are just so good. They do pick the child actors very well. The ants infiltrate the lab and begin sabotaging the equipment, thus drawing Ava out into the open. This allows Hank to enter the lab, subdue Foster, shrink down and enter the quantum realm. I can't really bring myself to trust Hank when he tells Foster that he'll help him and Ava after after he saves Janet from the quantum realm. I mean, it's Hank Pym. I'm not sure anyone has ever trusted him. But I'm surprised that Foster accepted his promise so quickly, given their background. Scott distracts Ava long enough for Hope and Luis to extract Foster from the lab, shrink it down, and take it away. But then Sonny and his goons cut off his escape route and force Hope and Luis and the lab to retreat in their van. Really? This guy again? I hear you, Hope. I hear you. I mean, isn't Sunny kind of Hope's fault? She was the one trying to do shady business with him in the first place. Yeah, I guess you could make that argument. And then got- beat up a bunch of his goons and and stole the piece, that they, the thing that they needed. I mean, if anybody <laughs> deserves to be chased after Sunny, it's probably Hope. <laughs> No, I hadn't. I guess I hadn't. I hadn't thought about that before. Uh, given my feelings about uh, Evangeline Lilly, which I'll very, very briefly touch on later on, you figure I'd be the first one to throw her under. You figure that I would be the first one to throw her under the bus. But, but it does make some sense. But then, if she doesn't talk to Sunny, we have no movie. Because Marvel, like I've always said, when all else fails, when you ask why something happens in the MCU, because Marvel. With the help of their shrinking van, some well-placed shrinking and enlarging discs fired from the wasp suit, and the arrival of Ava, who's also pursuing them, they shake Sonny, but not before Sonny is able to get a hold of the lab. While Hope is fighting Ava, Luis realizes that the remote that shrinks and re-enlarges the lab is still in the van. Using one of the shrunken cars in the Hot Wheels case, Luis flees the van in an attempt to get the remote to Hope. Sonny, with the lab in hand, flees to Fisherman's Wharf and hops on a ferry. Scott tries to follow him, but all of his ants keep getting eaten by seagulls along the way. I did think that was funny. He falls into San Francisco Bay, but then enlarges himself into Giant Man and takes the lab from Sonny. Good God. (laughs) It's like 13 minutes of pure chaos, that last sequence. I mean, if you're like my aforementioned nephew and enjoy the sight gags involved in all the growing and shrinking stuff... The giant Pez dispenser crushing the dude on the motorcycle. The giant Scott walking around in San Francisco Bay. I suppose it's a fun sequence. But me, I just, every time I see it, I just get dizzy and confused. And, you know, I was so happy at figuring out what had happened in that chase sequence a little bit earlier. And that all just kind of got blown up once again because I watched this and it just, I have such a hard time trying to track everything. It just gives me a headache. I was just thinking... Imagine if you were in New York when Loki happened in the first Avengers movie and you decided to get a fresh start on the West Coast and saw all of this. And don't forget, Shang-Chi lives in San Francisco too. So 
There could be dragons flying around the city by the bay, for all we know. You know who else lives in San Francisco? Who else lives in San Francisco? You got a guess? I'll give you three guesses. In the MCU? Technically. Yeah, technically. Oh, God, no. Jesus. (laughs) You had to do it. I was actually so worried that I wasn't going to fit it in in this one. And I did it. I hate you, Emily. I did it. I hate you, Emily Griswold. It's Venom, by the way. Venom lives in San Francisco. Oh, see, now now you have no problem getting super close to the mic. So you say, I just Venom. want to make sure everybody hears me. Yes, they heard you. Yes, they heard you. All of all of Emily's Twitter followers who think <laughs> Venom is hot stuff. There you go. Thank you for listening to our podcast, by the way. Hank reaches Janet's coordinates, lands the pod on some sort of solid structure, and disembarks. After a brief period of disorientation and some weird visions, he locates Janet. First of all, Liz would be very upset with me, my roommate, if I did not mention the tardigrades floating the tar- around. <laughs> the, tar- the tardigrades were were kind of were kind of cool. Um, but back on topic, time works differently in the quantum realm, of course, which means it was definitely more than thirty years or less than thirty years. I mean, we're kind of getting ahead here, and like spoilers, bid big flashing red light or whatever but Skant is in the quantum realm for five years but for him it's five minutes after in after the end of this movie scott says it was five hours for him in endgame and you know but i, I gave up trying to figure out how long it had been for janet i mean yeah she went in the mid 80s she went in all i know is that you know she went in looking like mid 80s michelle pfeiffer and came out looking like 2018 michelle pfeiffer so <laughs> so who the hell knows um I just think it's a missed opportunity or a plot hole or whatever, which of course there's going to be because there's so many movies. But that for him, it's like, oh, it's five hours, but it's been five years. And with her, it's it seems to have been exactly 30 years on both ends. Maybe she wandered into one of those time vortexes she ends up telling Scott to stay away from. Maybe. Maybe. she. Yeah, we never got the full story of what she was doing down there the whole time. I sense a Disney Plus movie in there somewhere, or Disney Plus series somewhere in there, although I can't see Michelle Pfeiffer doing TV. Having remained big for so long, Scott goes into a state of hypoxia, with his brain not getting enough oxygen. After putting the lab on dry land, he collapses back into the harbor. Hope flies into the water and tries to save him. Ava appears out of nowhere, takes the remote from Luis, and re-enlarges the lab right there at the waterfront. Hank and Janet begin to re-enlarge now that the lab is back to full size, but unaware that Ava is on the other end. Hope messes with the unconscious Scott's suit and shrinks him down to tiny size before bringing him up onto the land, where he regains consciousness. Sonny and his goons try to kill Luis, but are incapacitated by Dave and Kurt, who are now armed with tasers. Right. Okay. Sure. Um, also, as a person who engages with urban planning and policy on a regular basis, I have some concerns about re-enlarging the lab all willy-nilly in random places. You're going to break something. Many multiple expensive somethings. As a person who's been to Fisherman's Wharf before, I can say, yeah, <laughs> dropping, dropping an office building in the middle of the street there is not good. 
The street's not built for that. They didn't zone the street for a giant office building. And who knows how much ground? I mean, I don't know if any of that is like over the any of that land is like over how the much bay. How, yeah. is like actually actually over the water. You know, that could uh, yeah, that that that's a you know, all of a sudden you'll how many however many tons just suddenly put on there. It's a wonder the whole pier didn't fall into the bay. Well, any structural engineers out there can leave us a comment <laughs> if you have anything to say about this. Foster enters the lab and tries to talk Ava out of her plan, but she rebuffs him and hurls him aside before entering her chamber to start siphoning quantum energy away from the returning Janet. Just then, Hope and Scott enter the lab and begin disconnecting equipment. Ava emerges from her chamber and fights them. She is knocked unconscious when the pod arrives back at the lab at full size and hits her unexpectedly. Hope and Janet are reunited and Janet voluntarily gives Ava some of her quantum energy to stabilize her. Foster pledges to stick with Ava and continue helping her, even as they go into hiding. Scott tricks Wu into chasing his empty giant suit, while he sneaks out of it in his boxers and returns to the house before Wu can find him not there. With no evidence that Scott violated his house arrest, Wu reluctantly releases him. Scott immediately goes to visit Cassie and her mom. After news coverage of them taking down Sonny's group goes viral, XCon gets that lucrative contract they were pursuing. Hank and Janet shrink their house and relocate it to some tropical beach somewhere. Scott, Hope, and Cassie enjoy a drive-in movie in a shrunken car parked in front of a laptop on the lawn. How does one of the shortest Marvel movies ever made end up with such lengthy plot synopses from me? <laughs> the entire last 45 minutes of the film is just so much it really does overwhelm me there's a lot going on in the first movie too but somehow the timing and the pacing of everything was such that it all made sense anyhow but this film this film almost feels like a lighter version of age of ultron just set piece after set piece and with very little explanation or at least explanation we can understand you know i wonder if any of that had to do with the possibility that maybe those scenes in the first film had already been broken down by Edgar Wright before he left the production, and that Peyton Reed and his editors couldn't quite do it on their own this time around. Mind you, that is entirely speculative on my part, but I just can't help but wonder. Hank and Janet's house is totally going to fall into the ocean in a few years. That's all I've got to say. Yeah, we, we don't know if the office building is going to sink Fisherman's Wharf, but yes. <laughs> that house is going in the ocean like that house in North Carolina did. Yeah. What house in North Carolina? Oh, there's a house um, on the Outer Banks in North Carolina that fell into the ocean the other day. Two houses, actually. Hope no one was in them. No, I think they were like summer homes, and it's not quite summer. In a mid-credit sequence, Scott goes back into the quantum realm, using a miniaturized version of the quantum tunnel now built into the XCON van in order to harvest more quantum energy to stabilize Ava. I just have to say... I'm glad we got to hear that at least once. But before he can be re-enlarged, he loses contact with Hank, Hope, and Janet. The camera cuts back to the van, where it appears that Hank, Hope, and Janet have all been turned to dust. In a post credit scene, we see one of the giant ants playing on Scott's electronic drum set as the emergency alert system test pattern can be seen on the TV. To be continued. Don't get sucked into any time vortexes. Wink, wink. 
By the way, I really do like the miniature modeling work in the uh, in the credits. I thought that was very clever. At least Hank kind of sort of kept his promise to Foster and Ava. I mean, Scott is doing the legwork, but Hank is providing the resources. Decent enough turnaround. Just as you decide to do the right thing, an intergalactic tyrant comes you along. Get snapped. And wipes out half the universe. Damn it. So that's our plot synopsis. This is the part of the podcast where we talk about characters and actors. Starting off with Paul Rudd as Scott Lang slash Ant-Man. Paul Rudd certainly doesn't do a bad job in this film, but he doesn't really do a stellar job either. In the first film, I feel like we got a good sense of him and the conflict between wanting to stay on the straight and narrow for the sake of Cassie, yet not knowing how to do anything but burgle and being frustrated at being kept out of work because of his prison time. Those character beats were interesting, and they gave Rudd some depth amidst the comedy. This time around, it just kind of feels like all Scott's doing is reacting to stuff and apologizing to Hank and Hope endlessly for going to Germany. But I do I do agree with you about his performance as the the Janet possessed Janet possessed Scott. That was that was amusing. I think his best outing, like Paul Rudd's best outing as Scott Lang slash Ant Man is Endgame. I agree. I think it's like the first Ant Man movie or the Endgame, then the first Ant Man movie, and then this one. Because I think they were trying too hard. To be funny. And I think in the first movie, it actually wasn't that bad. I think it was reasonable. Mm-hmm. And in this one, I think they were just trying too hard. I mean, I, I kind of think, I think that, I think his his performance in the first Ant-Man was overall the best because he was, you know, it was his film and he was in it a lot. And I thought the humor was appropriate. But having said that, I mean, when we get to our Endgame review, I will have a lot Let's just say I will have a lot to say about the scene where Scott reunites with Cassie, uh, because I think, frankly, it's one of the best scenes in the entire film. I do and, wish we could see him in more, not serious roles, but less jokey haha stuff. I'm not sure how to explain that. That I don't mean serious when I say less right. jokey haha stuff. No, I get but it. yeah. We know he's got the range. Like I and I hear. I mean, I know I'm getting he ahead of myself. Definitely does. Yeah. I know. I know we're getting ahead of myself, but I, I, because I, I, but I can't. Anytime I have the opportunity to talk about it, the reunion scene with Cassie in Endgame, if I'm not mistaken, a lot of that was ad libbed by him. The whole, you know, you're you're so big. <laughs> that that was that was ad libbed. That was not in the script. He just threw that in there, uh, and the Russo brothers were like, "Okay, this is brilliant. We got to keep that." Because it was, it was just, you know, you know, you think you're, you, you, you've just been, you've just, you know, you've just sort of like, you've, you've, you pop out of the quantum realm after what only seems like five hours to you. And suddenly the whole world has gone to hell and you think your entire family's dead. And to find that someone made it, although she's, you know, five years older now, um, and he just that it's such it's such it's a small scene, but it's just you know, just the reaction, his reaction, and just the look on his face and the way he just kind of whoa, you're so big, and he's just so relieved that Cassie's alive, uh, and he's just it, that was just that, I just thought that was that was a really it was a short beat, but it was done so well by him, and and comic comic actors 
comic actors will always be able to do drama easier than dramatic actors can do comedy. Uh, if you can do comedy, you can do anything. Well, and I think in this movie, what you said about him being reactive, I think is right. But in the same sense that like he's doesn't come off as smart as he did in the first one. Like he's a well-educated person. And in the first movie, you could see that because he knew, like, he he wasn't just some dum-dum, but in this movie, it kind of feels like he's just some dum-dum. Yeah, he does seem like a dummy, a kind of a dum-dum in this movie. Just kind of, oh, geez, well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I went to Germany, but I had to. And yeah, he just kind of along for the ride. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's, that's another thing I, I really disliked about the film. It's, you know... Yes, it is, you know, granted it is Ant-Man and the Wasp. You are sharing this film with, you know, with someone else. But it's like your part should still be fairly significant. And his, it's not that it wasn't significant. It's just that he was less proactive in this one, like I said before. And I would have, it just, that just felt wrong somehow. Evangeline Lilly as Hope Van Dyne slash the Wasp. Okay. Are I you go first? Okay, please That's go first. I was raising my hand. Please go first. <laughs> I think she was better in the first movie. Although I will say, I don't know what it is about my brain, but her like severe short bob haircut and her long hair, my brain can't fathom that it's the same person. <laughs> <laughs> like her, the way that they make her look when she's the the one working for Darren Cross and the way she looks now, they look like completely different people to me, but I think she was way better in the first movie. I actually think she maybe had more to do in the first movie. And I think that made her better because in this one, she's just spending a lot of time being sad about her mom. And I feel like I don't remember her being so pitiful, I guess in the first one about it. I, I think I have to disagree with you on this one. I think she had a lot more to do in this film because of all the stunts and all the, you know, the wasp suit stuff, the flying around, the fighting, the driving, and the fact that, you know, she and Hank kind of took the the initiative away from, from Scott in a lot of this film, for better or worse. I, I, yeah, she, she, she talked, yeah, she kind of, you know, gets, you know, wistful about mom a few times in this one, but I thought... I think she spent a lot more of the first film as much as I liked her in the first film, just kind of, you know, just being just pissed off at her dad, just kind of, you know, just, just kind of being really, why and why, and, and being angry at Scott, I guess you know, why, maybe. why, 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 why do we need this guy? Why do we need this guy? Let me do it, dad. And just kind of, just kind of just being just pissed off at everybody. In the I guess first maybe film. for this movie though, because she had the wasp suit. I think maybe they said, oh, she's got all the action to do, so we won't really develop her character as much. Maybe. Yeah, but does anybody's character in this no, film get developed? Not. No, of course I just, not. I, I just talked about how Scott doesn't do anything in this film. In fact, if, 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 anyone, if anyone actually kind of, if we learn a little bit more about anyone in this film, it's probably Hank. Yeah, I mean, I guess all of that to say, meh. You know, it's always been my intention to to try and minimize political discussions on this show. That said, full disclosure, I I had to try very hard not to let Evangeline Lilly's 
more recently publicized views on vaccines blunt my objectivity. That said, just like with Paul Rudd, I think we got, I thought we got a pretty solid outing from her as hope in this movie. Not bad, but not spectacular. I mean, I think she nails the action stuff really well, as I would expect. You know, her emotional reactions with, you know, the Janet possessed Scott and Janet herself, you know, were, were well delivered. Um, it's, you know, it's like, it's kind of, you know, she did good. You know, it was, it's just, I just kind of, kind of, you know, for the most part, kind of middle of the road about the whole thing. Moving on to Michael Douglas as Hank Pym. Michael Douglas remains my favorite veteran actor in the MCU. Uh, I, I love his Hank Pym. You can tell that Hank is really driven to find Janet, and that drive is only amped up by his status as a fugitive and his anger at Scott for what he's done. As a result, I think that's what allows us to see a lot more of that arrogance and that unpleasantness that Foster talks about. Because I guess I, I saw some of it in the first film, but apparently not as much as you did. Uh, but you feel it really palpably, you know, you feel, you know, you felt that pretty palpably in the first film. Uh, I felt it a lot in this film. I just think he's a big baby, like the character. <laughs> like, I've been thinking about, um, I guess maybe typecasting, I guess is what you could put it. And there's always that role of, like, the grumpy old man, like, the Scrooge kind of guy. And I feel like they've just decided he's the Scrooge. And there's not really anywhere else to go with that, except for, like, a slight redemption arc and not being as much of a brat. But there's no other type of growth that can happen with that. And, I mean, out of veteran actors, if we're talking about veteran actors, I really liked um, Obadiah Stane. Oh, uh, Jeff Bridges. Yeah. Yeah, he always he's, he's still he's very my good. Favorite. He's your favorite. I think yeah, so. you talk you talk about him a lot. You you've brought him up a number of times since we did that, since we reviewed Iron Man. Walton Goggins as Sonny Birch. Who is it? <laughs> I've I've seen Walton Goggins in a few things. Most notable, most notably the the FX series, you know, The Shield, from back in the aughts. Uh, he was really good in that. You know, cop drama, if you've never seen it, kind of a, an edgy, edgy, you know, quite morally questionable cop drama. Uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, this character just comes off as kind of a sleazy, dangerous, and yet somehow hard-to-take-seriously kind of person. I don't know if it's Goggins' portrayal or the way the character was written or directed, but it's like every time he's on screen, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to fear him or laugh at him. Yeah, I think, again, the the character, maybe not so much. I don't think it's the actor's fault. But just trying so hard to remind everybody that, like, I'm the baddie. Like, I'm the one you should pay attention to. And it's like, we're so busy with every other piece of matter on Earth right now. Like, we don't have to. Like, I kind of agree with Hope of, like, a little bit of, like, oh, this guy again? Because they're so busy with everything else. But you did bring him in, so you have to use him. And I think, unfortunately, that means that he gets the short end of the stick of having to remind everybody that he's there and he can cause problems too. I thought I just thought he was unnecessary. You know, you could have you yeah. had enough you had enough with them being chased by Ava and the FBI. Why did you need this idiot? But since he's there, the you have to do something with him. And 
I don't think the something that they did was very good. I'm saying they shouldn't have brought him in at all. Well, yeah. Hannah John Kamen is Ava Starr slash the ghost. I liked her. I'm into it. She kind of reminds me of, um, uh, oh no, Taskmaster. In appearance, yes. In appearance, yeah. And I think similarly in like the being taken advantage of part. Like we don't really know what the girl who was Taskmaster, I can't remember her name now, but we don't really know who she would have turned into if she hadn't been programmed into this killing machine who probably is in a lot of pain too. Like you don't really ever recover from being exploded. Just like Ava probably never really recovered from, I mean, she clearly hasn't recovered from being phased into the quantum realm every second. Yeah, well, we don't get a whole lot about Taskmaster and you know Drakehall's daughter. I, I forgot her name too. So I will give I will give I will give Ava Star the edge in this case because at least we find out a good amount about her, and it becomes pretty clear how much pain she's in and how much damage is being caused to her because she is you know she's telling us about it all the time. Yeah, you know, I, I I try to take into account your comments earlier about Ava being you know so traumatized because that's all obviously com- completely true. Um, she, yeah, yeah, you know, Hannah John came and she does the she does the righteous outrage thing really well. I guess I just I don't know. I guess I just wish we'd gotten, you know, you know they were able to do that. They were able to get some. We were able to get some nuance with Killmonger, and with uh, you know. With Adrian Toomes, the Vulture, I, you know, I, I kind of thought it would have been nice to have. I thought it would have been nice to have that with Ava. There's still a chance to do that, you know. We, I, I hope we see her again uh, somewhere in the MCU because I kind of left her, her future very uh, big question mark. Now on to Randall Park as Agent Jimmy Woo. I like the Agent Woo that we saw in Wandavision. Uh, I, I liked him a hell of a lot more than I liked this guy. Uh, granted, he was set up to be a more sympathetic character in WandaVision because he's trying to help the hero instead of stop the hero in that case. But I don't know. In this movie, he just he just comes off like a this you know incompetent you know Javert like obsessive lawman, and you know I just I just thought he was kind of a dick. I do like all of the parts where he was like really really trying to explain what he was doing like to Cassie when he was like sort of over explaining you know like I'm gonna make sure you know every single law and you're gonna know all of the like clause 2b dash 3a of this thing like clearly that's a person who does not talk to children very much and thinks like oh I'll just talk to them like an adult and they're gonna understand right I kind of thought that was a little funny I mean, yeah, I'm sure they were trying to play it for laughs. I just didn't, you know. I, I guess okay, I see what they're trying to do. It doesn't really. It just, I guess, it didn't resonate with me as well. Um, and just the whole, you know, he's kind of got, you know. I, I are you trying to? Are you trying to be funny? Or are you trying to be serious? Like, um, he just kind of has this, you know. Well, you know, I'm gonna. You tricked me this time, Scott Lang, but I'm gonna get you one of these days. And it's like I can't take that seriously. Um, that just, and it just, it just kind of just grated on me somehow. Uh, I, I really liked him a lot more in WandaVision. Lawrence Fishburne as Bill Foster. I suppose it was only a matter of time before Lawrence Fishburne 
showed up in the MCU. I mean, he plays a pretty stock character that doesn't have a ton to do. But I mean, it's it's Lawrence Fishburne. <laughs> you know, granted, you're not gonna get you're not gonna get Ike Turner in every film that he does, but he can just always be relied upon to deliver a solid performance every single time. Uh, and and like Ava, I really do hope we see him again in the MCU sometime. I like Lawrence Fishburne, but I don't really have anything to say about Bill Foster. There's not a whole lot to say. Yeah, I didn't say that much about him. I don't really him. have anything. I said a lot to say about Lawrence Fishburne. <laughs> I really didn't say much about Lawrence about Bill Foster. Michael Pena as Luis, Tip T.I. Harris as Dave, and David Desmalchian as Kurt. Um, the three guys didn't have as much to do this time around, but it was still good to see them again. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I had kind of forgotten about them. But I think they're so funny. I think the three of them play off each other so well. Like, you can tell that they probably just sit in a room before they start filming and just, like, ping-pong talk. <laughs> Stuff. Like, just a round table of silly back and forth. It's like, it's, it's like these, are the, these are the, you know, if they were doing method acting, I mean, that would be, that would be really, really fun to be, you know, on the set <laughs> if they stayed in character for a while. But, like, you know when you just, like, you hit a good flow with a person while you're talking and everything makes sense and there's mm-hmm. no there's no confusion, there's no hang-ups. That's what I feel like happens whenever the three of them are together. <laughs> yeah. And I guess you know, I think one of the one of the one of the flaws of the movie is we don't see more of them. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I would agree. like they were kind of they, they especially towards the end of the first movie, they were kind of a big even the beginning, there's just their presence, you know, just setting up this cast of characters that is hanging out with Scott was just very it was it was funny in a not forced way, and it was there was some genuine humor, and it just worked. And you know we didn't get enough of that this time around. And the bit with the <laughs> the, the, the plopping the entomans down on the table, I can't get past the whole oatmeal packets discussion. Bobby Cannavale as Jim Paxton. So I only know Bobby Cannavale from the recent-ish reboot of Annie, where he played. Um, Hannigan's brother I think and so he's this horrible sleazy character and so the fact that he's like so kind almost overly kind in a way in this movie makes watching any scene he's in almost unbearable like I want him to be evil and terrible that's who he's supposed to be he did make a weird turn in this movie didn't he it's like he's like all of a sudden super nice now and it was kind of weird it's weird, uh, like, whenever they would hug, like, when the three of them, or, like, Cassie, Maggie, and Scott hugged, and he came in and hugged, and it was just like, ugh. Yeah, because it's like, dude, you used, to, you used to hate this guy just, yeah, you know, not, two years earlier. You're not here. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he did, you know, he did save, he did save your stepdaughter's life, and I can certainly see you, I can certainly see him sort of gaining more respect for, for, uh for Scott at this point, but it's like, he's like full on cheerleader and it just felt really weird. Judy Greer as Maggie. She had like what? Three lines in the whole movie. Yeah. I, what was this? The terrible joke that she made where she was like, what does FBI stand for? And it was like, for, uh, frequently bothering individuals and she was like real smug about it. And everyone was like, it's not a good joke, Maggie. Well, I think they, it's like they, it's like they, they did it in the first film too. They deliberately wrote her to be kind of unlikable. 
in the first film, and maybe that hasn't changed in the second film. I mean, I don't dislike her. I just think she's kind of, you know, bleh. bleh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Abby Ryder Fortson as Cassie Lang. I'll let you start on that one. Oh, it's going to be the same stuff I already said. I think they do great with their kid actors. I think she's great. I think she feels really mature for whatever her age is supposed to be, and not like in a weird awkward way but in a way that it feels right like it feels right that scott would have a kid who is this in tune and this aware but also still a kid like they didn't they didn't hammer it in too hard that like she's a really thoughtful kind person at the expense of her being a child like i think they let her still be a kid yeah it's like she's she was she was cute without being like sickeningly stupidly cute and that's hard to pull off, I think. Uh, she kind of just, she felt, she her, her performance in the first film and in this one, it was, just, it was just kind of just right. It was just the right amount of kidness, for lack of a better descriptor. It just, you kind of get her, so you, you, you know who she is right away. You get her, you like her. That's fantastic. You know, what more can you ask for? It's kind of a shame we're not going to see her anymore, but... Michelle Pfeiffer as Janet Van Dyne. I don't really have a whole lot to say about her, given that she's she's not in the movie a whole lot, despite the fact that she's <laughs> the main focus of the movie. It's kind of like kind of like Matt Damon in Saving Private Ryan. Um, it's Michelle Pfeiffer. I thought it was great that they got another fantastic veteran actor to play the spouse of another great veteran actor. Maybe maybe we'll see. I don't know. I, I don't remember if she's in Quantum Mania. I hope she is, uh, and I hope we I hope we get to hope we get to see some. It just would be an interesting to see the family dynamic with you know with uh, Hope and both of her parents around. So this is the time we usually talk about music. The score was once again composed by Christoph Beck, who has become kind of quietly a. Uh, a staple in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He's done he's done two he's done two feature films, and he also he well, I know he scored like um, you know, back on you know the Agent Carter series back on ABC, and uh, he I believe he scored the Hawkeye series, and that was a really good that was a really good score. So he's kind of been doing he's quietly become a, a staple in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I like the score of this film. I think I like the first one a little bit better just because you hear the the theme more. But I do like the fact that he kind of did some interesting things with the Ant-Man theme in this one because he's kind of spun it off. He kind of spins off the Wasp and gives her her own theme and and, and it was kind of neat to hear the, you know, the like, you know, the the miniaturized uh, your the the Mario Kart <laughs> the Mario Kart neat thing when, you know, when they're driving around in the shrunken car. But that's really all I have to say. It's a good it's a good score. I didn't I never used to listen to it as much because I never liked the film, but I went back and played it again a couple days ago and I thought, you know, this is a really good score. I need to listen to it more. Yeah. I don't really remember much of it, actually, even though I just finished the movie yesterday, but I do remember liking it. <laughs> there was nothing, like, iconic about it, but it was good. So that is our review of Ant-Man and the Wasp. Coming up next, don't know when this is going to happen, but coming up next, we start getting into the big guns. 
starting off with Avengers Infinity War. Can you believe we finally made it? We finally made it to Infinity War. That's, I'm pretty surprised. Yeah, that's an achievement. That's gonna be a that's gonna be a heck of an episode. I haven't thought about that yet, but that'll be that'll be the longest movie that we've reviewed. So we might have a long show for that one. Hopefully, my voice will be in better shape. I feel I feel pretty good right now. So, but yes. Avengers Infinity War coming up in our next episode. That will be epic. But until then, thank you all so much for joining us for this latest episode. And we will see you down the road. Thanks for tuning in. Take care of each other. Be safe. We'll see you around. Venom needs to go in the show. Venom cannot be a cold open. It needs to be in. Yes, I know. I know. I'll keep it in. This could be the closeout, though. What could be the closeout? Me telling you that Venom has to be in it. Okay. That would be a funny closeout, I think. <laughs>